This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We continue our Red for Ed coverage, taking a deeper look at the victory of the Los Angeles teacher strike with Joel Jordan, former strategist for UTLA, who's now a coordinator for nine of the largest urban teacher unions in California, including UTLA, fighting for increased public school funding and against school privatization. Joel and current California Federation of Teachers President Josh Peshtalt led a rank-and-file insurgency that won the leadership of UTLA beginning in 2005 called United Action. and That was the direct predecessor of the Union Power Caucus that today leads UTLA. We're going to get Joel's analysis of the LA teachers' victory, how they carried out the strike, making the fight for public education, one that the larger community overwhelmingly supported, how they wielded the strike weapon, what limitations they faced, and what this means for the labor movement, where we are already seeing ripples from the strike. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm really pleased that today we're going to be looking at the teacher's strike with Joel Jordan. He's a retired Los Angeles Unified District high school teacher and a former UTLA director of special projects. Joel and the current California Federation of Teachers president, Josh Peshtalt, led a rank-and-file insurgency called United Action that won the leadership of UTLA beginning in 2005. United Action was the direct antecedent of the Union Power Caucus, which currently leads UTLA. Joel is now a coordinator for the California Alliance of Community Schools, a consortium of nine of the largest urban teacher unions in California, including UTLA, fighting for increased public school funding and against school privatization. His articles on teacher union issues have appeared in Monthly Review, Against the Current, and many other places. Joel, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Great to be here, Susie. Good to have you. Well, the LA Unified and the teachers took on the LAUSD, that's the Los Angeles School Board, and their board is dominated by pro-charter billionaires. This was a spectacular week-long strike that ended with a huge win for teachers, students, public education, and the common good, and it was a big loss for the charterizing privatizers and their political backers. At least that's what I want us to talk about. The agreement that ended the strike was overwhelmingly ratified on January 23rd, and we're already seeing ripples, as I said in the intro. The L.A. walkout was particularly unusual in that the teachers won more for the kids than for themselves, or at least we should talk about that. But it's widely agreed that while this strike was carried out brilliantly by UTLA, the most successful strike in its execution that most people can remember. The mood was exuberant all week. But do you agree with that assessment, Joel? And maybe you could present your answer in kind of two parts. One, what was the strategy that UTLA, under the leadership of Alex Caputo Pearl and the Union Power Caucus adopted going into the strike? And secondly, what did the teachers do in the course of the strike that enabled them to be so successful? Sure. Yeah, glad to be here, Susie, and celebrate this enormous victory for UTLA, for public education, and for the, and for the labor movement uh, as well. I want to start out by saying that this strike was not a Johnny-come-lately. It was very well prepared for. In fact, it was four and a half years in the making. UTLA leadership at the Union Power Caucus inherited what was still basically 
a service union structure. And what it did over time was to convert the union from that structure to an organizing union model. So the union never had an organizing director or department. Now it did. It didn't have a community relations department. Now it did. It didn't have a research department. Now it did. And it also began to hire union organizers, experienced union organizers as field staff, whereas that had not been the case before. So all this helped in the lead-up to this strike over a number of years. A dues increase was passed a few years ago, which allowed the union not only to fund these positions, but to also build more power at the school sites. The union began to develop a site organizing strategy centered on creating contract action teams at every site so that every union member was involved in the build-up to the strike. There were systematic assessments of the member commitment for a strike so that we already saw that by, I believe it was um, the beginning of the school year, a strike authorization vote was taken where 98% of the members voted for a strike and 83% participated in that vote, which was uh, unprecedented. There was unprecedented community and parent engagement. There was several community organizations were brought on as co-strategists with UTLA on building support, not just for the strike, but building uh, around the broader demands of the union, which I'll get to in a second. There was extensive parent flyering, town hall meetings. And then there was a key factor, which was the union projected its struggle not in terms of self-interest, primarily pay or health benefits, although that was an important factor, but in uh, social justice demands, Mm. um, where less emphasis was put on salary, more on working and learning conditions, on class size, on supports for students, counselors, librarians, nurses, the development of community schools, which are schools with extensive uh, curriculum enrichment, parent and community engagement, and wraparound services as an alternative to privately run uh, charter schools. And then the overall frame was that this was a fight for public education against the billionaires and privatizers, Mm. uh, exemplified by the superintendent, Superintendent Buettner, who is a a former investment banker with no experience in public education. So UTLA made this not just a narrow self-interest strike, but a political strike over the future of public education. This is all great. And I know for those who watched that final press conference after the marathon bargaining session, where you could see it in the faces, you know, of Butner and Alex Caputo Pearl and others, just, just sort of how it all came out. But I wanted to ask you, Joel Jordan, how you would evaluate this, the outcome of the strike. So I stated in the intro that it was a big victory and that we're seeing ripple effects. But do you agree with that? Certainly they made impressive gains, but at the same time, the strike was also gaining strength and momentum just as the contract was signed. In other words, it was, it was very quick. And, of course, uh, I'd like to get your assessment of that. And it raises the question of whether the settlement they won was commensurate with the power that they'd amassed. Could they and perhaps should they have fought for more? Or what do you think of that? And please give us your take on both aspects of that question. Sure. Uh, And there is an enormous paradox that's implicit in your question, which I'm going to get to. Mm -hmm. Because I would argue that this uh, contract settlement was, in its own terms, the the best contract settlement in teacher union history. And I say that because 
not only was it enormously comprehensive, covering so many areas of education work uh, in LAUSD, but the actual issues that were negotiated were um, incredibly weighty and consequential. So let me just go through some of them so sure. you, people understand. And I have to say, I, I was at the table. I helped negotiate an agreement in 2007, which I thought was a fabulous agreement. It, we negotiated class size reduction, a 6% pay raise, and, and other matters as well. But I've got to say, uh, this agreement makes that agreement pale in, in comparison. Wow. They won something that hindered us in 2007 was they won the elimination of an article in the contract that allowed the district to just set aside any contract agreement if it could claim um, a fiscal crisis, which they always did, and therefore we never had any ever since the, the, um, uh, the financial meltdown of 2007. We've never been able to negotiate uh, contract reduction uh, that was uh, enforceable by the contract because of this article. Yeah, we should, uh, by the way, just emphasize that, that that was kind of like an escape valve for uh, to always not agree, you know, live up to the agreement, right? Absolutely. And they escaped many times. And so by getting rid of that, they also negotiated a reduction in secondary math and English classes from 46 to 39, which is a very significant reduction. Is 39 an adequate class size? Of course not. But 46 is just ridiculous. And mm-hmm. so they were able to make significant progress in some classes, and they instituted hard caps. Getting rid of 1.5 means that hard caps on class size, even though they're still way too large, now is enforceable, and there is the beginning of a class size reduction process. That is enforceable. That is a huge win for the union. A second win is also absolutely huge is the question of student support, so that the number of nurses that were hired as a result of this agreement was more than double, so that every school now has a nurse five days a week. That has never been the case. They almost doubled the number of teacher librarians. Libraries have become, and, and librarians, and school librarians, have become kind of a thing of the past in so many school districts. Mm. This was a move in the opposite direction. And they also hired more counselors so that the counselor load is not as, as high as it had been. So that's an enormous improvement. They made an agreement to reduce standardized testing by 50%, which is something that teachers absolutely abhor all the time that is taken out of instruction for that. How much? Uh, What was the percentage? 50%. That's great. Okay, keep going. They got the board to advocate for a charter school cap, which is an amazing thing since not only 20% of students in the LAUSD jurisdiction go to charter schools, but the school board itself, half of the school board, is, was elected by charter school money. So this is an amazing thing to have done. They uh, got an agreement for 30 community schools, the funding for community schools with the enriched curriculum, wraparound services, and parent engagement, which is an amazing victory. And they got many other agreements on, for special ed, for uh, early ed teachers, and for the common good, more green space on campuses uh, that can be very depressing immigrant defense and a increase in the schools that can be exempted from the random searches that students uh, have been so opposed to and have built a movement around. And the list goes on and on. So this was an amazing agreement, which is in its own terms as a local collective bargaining agreement for teachers was a huge victory that could, was only possible as a real result of the strike. I want to say that none of these agreements 
had been signed off on by the union and the district before this strike. It was the power of the strike and the support that it had from parents and students and the community that made it possible. So it's a huge victory in that regard. And I want to say, as far as the time that it took to, to reach this agreement, right. I, would, I would say that, that the power of the strike meant that basically the, what, what could be won on a local basis, and I'll get into this in a second, uh, about the limitations of local collective bargaining, that what could be won on a local basis was pretty much achieved by the fifth day, by the weekend after the five-day strike. And so and I would argue that probably very little more could have been achieved given those limitations. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm speaking with Joel Jordan. The public support grew every day. I went on some of the rallies and pickets, and, and I mentioned the mood was exuberant. There were tacos for teachers. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about that and how it affected the bargaining and, as you mentioned, the limitations. Yeah. So in the last strike, 30 years before, when UTLA struck in 1989, it was a, a victorious strike, but it had much more limited goals. And... It had a more limited strategy so that, for instance, parents and students were not invited by the union leadership, were not invited on the picket lines. It was basically to be teachers, which isn't to say the parents and students didn't join, but there wasn't an active encouragement of the whole community to come out and support the teachers. That was not the case in this strike. In this strike, the union encouraged parents and students and community to come out of the line and give it wholehearted support so that picket lines systematically throughout the district were way larger than the number of teachers or educators working at that school. In the pouring rain, we should add. (laughs) Absolutely. It's as if that strike just unleashed the boundless creativity of the community, and regardless of the deluge that <laughs> that awaited. Yeah, and we should also mention that on the picket line I went to, the they were leading dancing. You know, they were singing and dancing. It was you know the mood was unbelievable. Absolutely. So the purposes of the strike were down to the school site. The this idea of this being a community strike, this was essentially a political strike for public education was embraced by the whole community. And mass rallies, there were daily mass rallies, almost daily mass rallies in downtown L.A., and also in the community to amplify the message of the strike. There was um, the consistently consistent messaging to UTLA members by the UTLA leadership that the strength of the strike was in the picket lines was by and, and building those picket lines day to day so that they would get stronger and stronger. And, of course, there was polling showing that the strike enjoyed and a growing support up to 80, 82 percent of the public supporting, supporting this strike. And even the media was coming around to uh, finally ditching the message that this was all about pay and, and beginning to understand that this was about way more than that. Can I just jump in on that? Because if you read the LA Times throughout the week, you see like they had two articles on the front page and they were like, okay, on the one hand, on the other hand. And and the message was often, well, strikes are very disruptive, not the message we want to send to the kids. And that changed as the support grew. And then all of a sudden you started to see articles that were much more complete and sympathetic even. Absolutely. So I would say that by the end of the weekend, I think the union calculated that its support was 
I don't want to say maxed out. It, it didn't almost need to grow much more than it did. It was just already phenomenal. Right. And so it was in a, in a great position to force the, the district into, into making these concessions to it and was able to do so, even though, obviously, you know, the union had to take into account some of the limitations. And, and let me get into that, if that's yeah, okay, Susie. Yeah, please, yes. Yeah, so the thing is that there are many people out there who might say, well, this union disagreement was very limited because it didn't reduce class size to what we really need, to 20 to 1, and it didn't uh, do X, Y, and Z. The problem is, is that education is really not primarily controlled by the district, even though the district sort of implements and administers the educational system. The important decisions are actually made at the state level, and two of which I want to talk about because they're key to this agreement. One is the issue of, of funding. Right. In order to fund, say, class size reduction, and by the way, class size reduction is enormously expensive. People don't realize that, to re- I, I've read various statistics on this, that to reduce class size by one student yeah. in a district size of L.A. is equivalent to like a 3% raise in salary, to wow. give you an idea of the immense cost of class size reduction. And the fact is that the reason why class size is so large throughout the state, not just in in L.A., but throughout the state, is because public education is enormously underfunded. Why is it underfunded? Because the state has underfunded it, led primarily by Proposition 13, which limited taxation, property taxation in California, so that the amount of money that's collected in taxes is much less, and therefore the funding for public education is much less, but also for other social services that are funded by the state. And if I could just come in, you can chart that. In fact, if you look at the decline of funding for California schools, it goes right back. It starts with the passing of Prop 13. Go ahead, Joel. So what, you know, your listeners have to understand, of course, is that there is a limit to what you can win on the district level. If the district is dependent on the state for its funding level... And the funding level provided by the state is too low, as it has been. I mean, it's ironic. California is the fifth largest economy in the world, and yet it has its per-pupil funding is among the lowest in the country, Mm. which is an unbelievable anomaly. And in any case, so what has to be fought for if, if conditions of public education and the public sector generally are to improve, what has to be fought for is a change on the state level for public education. And that is what UTLA uh, recognized, so that if you look at the messaging that UTLA put out, it didn't just say, it didn't say, oh, we can win everything we need here on the local level. It said, we can win a lot here, and we have to take on the the district with its $1.9 billion surplus and get a lot of that into our classrooms, but it won't be enough. We have to fight on the state level for progressive taxation to increase the funding for public education and other social services if we're going to be ultimately successful in turning the situation around in California. Okay, and so that well, I think this is a really important point to emphasize over and over again, that the teachers went on strike, strike in the district, but it's the state that controls the funding. So in a way, you know, you'd have to have a political strike against the state. But let's, we, I want you to come back to that, Joel Jordan, when you talk a little bit about the 2020 ballot initiative that will try to get more state 
approval for funding. But we have a lot to cover, and I want to get to the issue of charter schools and privatization. The union demanded a cap on charter school growth, which was the first to limit and then reduce the number of charter schools. And that really exemplifies UTLA's problem that we just talked about, Joel Jordan, that is that funding and policy is controlled by the state assembly. Alex Caputo-Pearl was very clear in his messaging from a from the very start that the cap on charters was absolutely central. But in the final analysis, as you've just explained, the union was at the mercy of state politicians. So the a uh, school board resolution, which you can see on the UTLA webpage, on charter schools that was negotiated by UTLA and the district to go to the State Board of Education for a cap, called for a comprehensive study of charters, and then said that they urged the legislators to put a, a, a cap on charters. So does that seem like a weak formulation to you, or was it really all they could get? Well, it it was part of a... I would say, a long-term strategy on the part of UTLA because what we have to recognize is that just as district funding is really in the final analysis determined by the state, charter school policy is really also determined by the state, established by state law in 1992 with the Charter School Act that set up the procedure for charter schools to be authorized in the state of California and what the UTLA leadership realized was that it's going to take a long, that we're not going to be able to solve the charter school problem on the local level. Mm. That just can't happen. It's possible that the, the, that the union could have demanded that uh, the district moratorium on charter schools, that would have been immediately in court by the California Charter School Association, and the, this, this particular school board never would have gone along with that, given its it's ideology and also, you know, I think that uh, the practical matters involved with the lawsuits. So basically what I think UTLA recognizes, it's going to take fight on the state level, and it was better to focus on getting the school board to agree that there needed to be a cap on class size, at least in, in this district, because 20% of the students in Los Angeles that could be going to LAUSD schools are going to privately run charter schools. And so I believe that what they thought was, and I think correctly, is that by getting this particular school board to call on the legislature to put a cap on charter school expansion was the best way to go in terms of building a state level, which is what, what we need. Okay, so let's move, Joel, because this, there's a lot more, as I just said, to given that the union needs political action in order to win, especially at the state level, it's going to have to win the support of, uh, you know, the state of the politicians. And we're in a deep blue state, but the Democratic Party, both nationally and at the state level, has made school reform, as they call it, meaning privatization and charter schools, teaching to the test and all the rest of it, a central and pretty much non-negotiable element of its program. Maybe that's going to change, but it's hard to name any major Democratic politician at the national or state level who doesn't support this, except, except of course, for Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the others on the far left of the Democratic Party. So in order to win, the union's going to have to create sufficient pressure to force them to support the union's demand, in other words, to shift their position. We saw some of that in this strike. But what do you think uh, to the, the extent to which the union was able to achieve this, and how can it up the ante going forward? Okay, so 
one example of how to do this was we could see in the strike itself. So I mentioned earlier about the union getting rid of Article 1.5 that uh, on class size, that article that allowed the district to avoid it, avoid class size reduction. During the strike, Mayor Garcetti, who was, was mediating that strike at the end, basically told the union that Butner would not accept eliminating that 1.5 clause. And basically the union just said, okay, we're going to walk. The strike continues unless that's done. Immediately Garcetti goes back to Butner, and guess what? The article is eliminated. So what that shows, what that clearly demonstrates, is the power of the strike, and that that, that power needs to be amplified a thousandfold to begin to pressure other Democratic politicians at the state level in particular around the issue of funding and also on the issue of charter school accountability. So, for instance, another example with Garcetti is that as a result of the strike, he now supports a funding a tax measure that's going to be on the 2020 ballot that would reform Proposition 13 to tax industrial and commercial property to pay for public education and social services. He didn't do that before, but the power of the strike made that happen. That's another example. So, yes, it's going to be the amassed power, and the UTLA strike is only a start in that direction, but it's the power of the strike and the power of the, not just the strike, but the way in which this strike occurred, the political way in which this strike was carried out. It carries the hope for the future that we can move Democratic Party politicians, and even in other states you could see how the power of the strike in the red states in spring moved Republican Party mm. uh, politicians to take uh, better positions on public education and, and provide more funding and, and more pay for teachers. There was a great article, by the way, that I should just alert the listeners to that was in LAS that talked about what happened at the end of the negotiation uh, You know that uh, was mediated by uh, Garcetti on that very issue of the stalemate over class size with neither side giving an inch. And I want to move on to the role of politics in this struggle or the need to fight for political demands at a political level. So could you step back and talk more generally about the relationship between the teachers' struggle for their demands and their politics? In other words, do you think it makes sense for the union to try to make a more than momentary and tactical alliance with more left-wing Democrats, that is to make a more durable alliance with them, like the CIO did with Roosevelt and the Democratic Party in the 30s? And more to the point, do you think UTLA is at all tempted to make that alliance? Uh, It seems to be putting a lot of hope, as you've mentioned, in the 2020 ballot initiative and a possible political strike. So how does it and how should it see the Democratic governor and the Democratic-controlled state assembly in this. And there, I should just mention, finally, Joel, there's an article in LA Times that talks about the difference between Brown and Newsom on this very issue about charter schools, whereas Brown started two charter schools, and uh, Newsom doesn't seem to have that same sort of uh, support for it. But go for it, Joel Jordan. Okay, so I think UTLA recognizes that, as I said before, that the strike is, is just the beginning, and that What's needed is to build a power base strong enough to actually be able to influence uh, the decision-making of the politicians. So UTLA is part of the California Alliance for Community Schools, which is, as you mentioned before, a consortium of the nine largest teacher unions in California, which is attempting to build toward 
mass action on the state level, possibly up to and including walkouts and a strike, in support of the Schools and Communities First Act, which I mentioned, that's the Prop 13 reform, and to build a organizing mentality across local organizing mentality among among California teachers. They tend to be a bit fragmented in their that, that is they are, they tend to be they see their targets as only their local school boards not so much the state and that needs to change and we're um, don't have a, a lot of time to get into it but that needs to be developed so the first the first issue is developing a sufficient power base to actually have the kind of influence that say that UTLA was able to have on Garcetti in the in this uh, LA strike uh-huh. um, second consideration of course is the nature of the uh, the politicians you're dealing with. And, of course, as long as the Re- Democratic Party is, like the Republican Party, beholden to corporate and business interests, it would be UTLA, I think, understands that and doesn't see a basis for a long-term or a strategic alliance with Democratic Party politicians, but only, uh, and as it should be, a short-term alliance on specific issues where they agree. And where they agree will, as we saw in the UTLA strike, come about only when the unions and their allies in the community have amassed enough power in the streets to be able to force the politicians to do what's right. Okay. Well, Joel, we've just about run out of time. Maybe just finally, are you hopeful in this period, seeing already that Oakland School District is talking about a strike, Denver's talking about a strike, the recent government shutdown stopped by air traffic controllers and stewardesses, threats, uh, means that the strike's making a comeback? I think that, yes, I am very hopeful. In the In the teacher union world, we are now beginning to see action that we had not seen before. So- with the unexpected red state strikes of last spring. Uh, Where this will go will depend a lot on the ability of progressive union uh, leaders in UTLA and the Chicago Teachers Union and other teacher unions to be able to generalize their experience to the entire teacher union movement to to move against what really still constitutes a bureaucratic uh, leadership of of the national and and state teacher unions, uh, for the most part, not in every case, but for the most part. And that is going to need to change if we're going to see a broader movement nationally and, and in other states. But that will be driven by rank-and-file action, as it was in in L.A., as it was in the red state struggles. Well, until the next time, Joel Jordan, thank you so much for bringing your analysis here to Jacobin Radio. Joel's a retired uh, LAUSD high school teacher, former UTLA director of special projects, and uh, he and the current CFT president, Josh Pesto, led a rank-and-file insurgency called United Action that won the leadership of UTLA beginning in 2005, and that United Action was the direct antecedent of the Union Power Caucus that currently leads UTLA. And now Joel's a coordinator for the California Alliance of Community Schools. That's a consortium of nine of the largest urban teacher unions in California, including UTLA, who are fighting for increased public school funding and against school privatization. Joel Jordan, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. 
Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Thank you.